listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. You turn to Proverbs, the book, the book of Proverbs, chapter 4. And uh, we're going to look at the first nine verses. We usually start off with reading uh, a passage of Scripture, which I think is a pretty great, pretty awesome place to start. And we've been in the habit of not putting it on the screen, so if you want to read along, then turn to that passage in your own Bibles, either on your phone devices or on Bibles that you brought yourself or the ones that we provide on the table, and um, find a seat. We do have always, for some reason, the four front tables are empty, so if you want to sit up here, I'll give you extra credit or something um, for coolness, so... That's to consider, but let's get serious for a second. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 says, uh, it's kind of about getting wisdom, getting knowledge, getting instruction. So listen to what it says. It says, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. Verse 3 says, for I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. And then verse 5, which is the sweet quote of the day, which is on the note card that you get as you come in sometimes. It says, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, though it costs you all you have. Get understanding. Cherish her. She will exalt you. Embrace her. She will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. So once again, going back to verse 5, get wisdom. Get understanding. And so today's lesson, that's what we're going to do. We're going to really talk about theology and the system of theology, this wisdom and knowledge that maybe, you know, if you're coming new to Sunday school, you might be, man, this is very heady. This is very teachy stuff. And we would say, yes, that's unashamedly what we do in the Mill Sunday School. We, we talk about getting wisdom and knowledge, and we think that's really important. So let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we do tell you that, God, we are here to learn from you. We are here to learn from your scripture. We are learn, here to learn about you and who you are. And God, would you never allow us to just learn about you for learning's sake, but God, that we might learn about you to change and conform our lives around who you are, to conform our lives around truth and understanding. So, God, we worship you. We praise you this morning. And everybody screamed, amen. amen. Um, yeah. Um, when I was, is anybody in college right now? So anybody a senior in college? Anybody? A few seniors. Sweet. Woo-hoo. Um, I remember when I was a senior in college, everybody, like on a daily basis, would ask you, what are you going to do after you graduate college, Right? Every day, people are asking you that, probably, if you're a senior in college. They ask me that. Like, I just felt like every day I was constantly answering that question, and I really felt the pressure because I didn't know what I was going to do after college. When I was in college, my undergrad degree, I was getting it in biology, and I knew that as I was graduating that I really didn't want to go in that direction as far as a career went. I was really more interested in ministry and the church world and not so much in biology, but I knew that I, I was already, you know, three-quarters of, of a way done with my degree, and so I knew finishing it would be the way to go. And so I finished my degree. As I was finishing my degree, I was thinking about what I wanted to do after college. And I was considering and thinking about seminary and going to seminary, choosing the path of, of ministry and church um, planting or church uh, mi- missions. I had no idea. I just knew that 
um, I wanted to do church stuff and ministry stuff, so I thought seminary would be the next step, and I was considering this seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, which, by the way, is the seminary I went to, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And so in this year of college, thinking about seminary, I would meet people, and they would ask me, what are you going to do after you graduate college? And so I began to tell people I was considering seminary. And I met a guy, I was, I was actually um, at a, at a church, visiting a church at this time, and I met a guy um, that, that really was against seminary and this idea of me going to seminary. And he, he, his name was uh, Big Old Brother John, is how he introduced himself to me. I was like, hi, my name is Joe. He was like, hi, my name is Big Old Brother John. And I was like, Big Old Brother John? And I was like, oh, nice to meet you big old brother John. And what was weird is that he, big old brother, he was like 20 something years old. So I'm not sure how he's old, but that, that's what he called himself. That's what his name was. He was a really nice guy. And his thing was that he was a traveling missionary. He didn't <coughs> really have a home. So he was kind of homeless, lived in different shelters, but his, his, um, he was a little crazy, but not too crazy. He was a really nice guy, but he, his mission was to hold these signs. And so he had these signs made that just said, God loves you. And he would go out on busy street corners or to big buildings and stand out in front of them or city hall, whatever, and just stand there with God loves you and have a big old smile on big old brother John's face and just point at people and be like, God loves you, man. He loves you. And smile at them and just brighten people's day. And so that, that's what his mission was. Like he just went out there and he met people and he smiled and he held this sign that said, God loves you. And, and so I was talking to him and his big thing was, man, you don't need to go to seminary. You just need to get out there and start doing it. You know, forget about learning and, and wasting your time learning when you could be doing it. And then he, of course, made the joke that seminaries are more or like cemeteries. <laughs> Have you heard that joke before? When you're in seminary, you hear that joke like every day. Like, oh, you're going to seminary. More like cemetery. <laughs> you're like, all right, I guess that's funny because I've heard it before. Anyways, but the idea is that um, and the people make this joke because sometimes people have this understanding that learning theology is like just an old man in a library by himself reading books and smoking a pipe and just like thinking theologically in a library and not doing anything or anything different or conforming his life or just just someone that knows theology but doesn't do theology. And, and so this guy, big old brother John, was like, man, you know, Jesus' disciples, they didn't need seminary. They didn't go to seminary. Jesus just called them, and then they, they followed Jesus, and they did ministry. So that's what you should do. You shouldn't waste your time learning theology and ministry. You should just go out and do it. And, and you'd be wasting your time if you learn about it before you do it. Just go out and do it was his big thing. Um, and so um, because the disciples, that the, he, he felt as though the disciples were uneducated, and they just went out and did ministry. And so as I began to think about that, I really thought, I think when, if you really think that just learning theology is just, you know, going off and, and reading a book in a library, then that's not, that's not really what theology is all about. Theology and learning about God should conform your life, and you should act differently according to what you know and believe, and you should have this grounding of, of what you believe before you go out and, and be a minister to someone else. And that there is, you know, you, you, to have, it's just like the blind leading the blind. If you're, if you're totally, you know, without education, you get this platform and you can speak and you're, you just have no idea about theology. It's like, man, you need to get some knowledge, get understanding, like the proverb says, before, you know, going out and doing it. It's, it's kind of what I came to this idea of. 
and just throwing out theology because maybe some people go off to seminary and they learn about theology and then they end up not believing in theology or not believing in God. That's, I think that's few and far between, by the way, in my opinion. But throwing out theology because you just want to go out and do ministry is kind of like throwing out the baby with the figurative bathwater. This is a picture of little Jay, and this is his first bath. And when we gave him a bath, we threw out the bath water, but we didn't throw out the baby. Duh. But anyways, um, going back to this bigger idea of, of what big old brother John said of like the disciples were totally uneducated. Jesus just called them and he followed them. And then they just started ministering. Well, that's not exactly true, is it? If you think about, you know, the disciples, they were with Jesus, a, a messianic rabbi, for like three or four years before they went off and did missionary work. Uh, by themselves. And so it's like, well, they kind of went to college in a way. I mean, it wasn't a formalized seminary theological education, but, you know, they spent three or four years with a Jewish rabbi. They probably, if they were good Jewish boys at the time of the first century, and there wasn't very many uh, books or scrolls uh, around of the Old Testament, they probably had to memorize the Old Testament. They probably heard the Old Testament. And if they knew it, then they had it memorized. They couldn't just go to their online Bibles like we can. And so it was a part of the Jewish culture to, for boys especially to memorize huge portions of Scripture. And so most little boys in this Jewish ancient world had Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy memorized. Look at your Bible real quick and like go to Genesis and then go, look how thick Genesis through Deuteronomy is. And, and so to think that these disciples were totally undereducated would be like, yeah, someone with that much of the Bible memorized is totally uneducated? I don't think so. Someone that spent three or four years with a, a Jewish messianic rabbi is totally uneducated? I don't think so. And then to consider that, that you and I, since we speak English, have to learn ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew um, to go along with the writings of what the Bible which was originally written in. Well, these uneducated, supposedly, disciples knew ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew, had huge chunks of the Bible memorized, and spent three or four Years with a Jewish Messianic rabbi. Hello, are they uneducated? No, I would say if you had all of those things, if you had this much of the Bible memorized, if you spent three or four years with a Jewish Messianic rabbi, living with him, constantly in communication, living and listening to their parables, if you, had, if you could speak fluent Greek and Hebrew, I would not call you uneducated. I would be like, wow, you're a scholar in the area of ancient biblical criticism, which is kind of weird because that's where the disciples were and they wrote the Bible. So it's like, duh, they, to use this example that they were uneducated, I think is silly. So all that to say that what we're doing in here by learning systematic theology, hopefully isn't just like, man, I don't want to learn theology for theology's sake. Well, that's not what we're in here doing. I, I expect, I would think that by learning theology, knowing the things of the system of systematic theology, we can put things in order. We can learn about God. And by learning about God, we could change and conform our lives if we really truly believe it and know it. And so that's really what this month is about. It's kind of a nerd fest this month, which some of you get excited about, right? Yeah. And so, um, and so other, some months of Sunday school, by the way, we take months, different topics. And so this month is, is a very nerdy, teachy month, um, more, uh, above and beyond what we usually are nerdy and teachy. Um, and so some of you really like that, and I'm glad. And so I think that this month 
is, is going to be very influential for you if, you, if you. if you were here last week and you're here this week, and if you come next week, we're going to continue this system of systematic theology. And then the, just as far as announcements go, the week of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving's on Thursday. On Friday, there'll be no mill. On the, on the Sunday after Thanksgiving Sunday, there will be no mill Sunday school. We're giving our leaders that whole weekend off so that our mill leaders can, can be with their families or travel or whatever. So just as far as announcements go, but we're here today. <clears throat> we're here next week. We're going to continue talking about systematic theology. And uh, as far as announcements go, one more, and that is if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And there, there should be on every table, there should be a couple uh, get schooled cards or I think it just says, a visitor card on it or Sunday school on it. If you want to give us uh, much or as little information about yourself as you want, you can bring it to the nice people as you leave. Uh, they'll give you a worship CD of some of the songs that we recorded on a Friday night, which is our main meeting for uh, the College and 20-somethings of New Life Church. It's called The Mill. All right, so are you ready for the system of systematic theology? How many of you were here last week? Lots of you. Sweet. The majority of you were here last week. That's good because I'm, I'm going to fly over this stuff and talk about there's a system by which we do systematic theology. It's kind of like studying something huge and overwhelming. Like when my college years, I studied biology, the study of all life. And so you open the door or even in here, you look in here, you look outside and you see plants. You see animals and butterflies and insects and bacteria and little funguses and worms and, and just the the world is teeming with life. And so, I mean, how do you even begin to study the environment, the ecology, life, and how, how animals and dogs and di- dissection, I mean, where do you even begin? Well, most biological classes will begin with the system of classification, the kingdom, phyla, wait, kingdom, phyla, class, order, family, genus, species. Bam! How about that for memorizing my college days stuff? Anyways, um, so, so that's the system of classification in biology. And that system really helps because you're like, okay, here's all the plants. And th- these things characterize a plant. Here's all the animals. These things c- characterize the animals. And then we'll talk about invertebrates or vertebrates or singular cell or multicellular animal organisms. And it helps to break up the order of all that is life so that we could even begin to be talking about how the organism lives. I mean, first you just have to call it what it is, and calling it what it is is classifying it. So in the same way, doing theology, and last week if you were here, I had everyone kind of discuss at their tables the wildest theological question they could think of, and we were everywhere. We talked about God making burritos. We talked about where does water come from. We talked about... um, what else? I mean, it felt like the questions were all over the place. And all of the questions, all of the topics had an order. And that order is called the system of systematic theology. So, are you ready to see the system again? Yeah, me too. Um, this is it. And, and by the way, it's in your notes. I, I think I lined up the notes kind of funny where I, I made it seem like we were going to talk about the whole system today. But really, the, that, that should be condensed. And we're really going to spend our time talking about number two, theology, number three, creation, number four, anthropology, and number five, Christology today. So if your notes look like they're organized a little funny, that's because they are. I apologize. But this is the system of systematic theology. Using this order Putting things into the topics, these nine headings, are, is what is called systematic theology. 
And the system is like a way of classifying. Just like we can classify all existing um, life forms into the biological classification systems, well, then we can, in the same way, in a theological matter, classify and order all subjects related to anything concerning Christianity or religion or God or us as Christians or whatever into the system. And this is the system of systematic theology. And so what we're going to do is to talk about all nine of these things this month in this order. And last week we talked about prolegomena and we, we said that prolegomena is the introductions, yeah, the, the preface, the, um, the, the introduction of, of theological things. And last uh, week we talked about how there's open and closed-handed issues for each of these nine systematic theological topics. Uh, and, and if you've been around the mill, if you've uh, maybe heard Mark Driscoll, I think, gets credit for coming up with this analogy of open and closed-handed issues. And he says that you can't hold that many things in a closed hand. You can hold a lot more things in an open hand and keep things, you know, heaping on to that open hand. But the closed-handed issues would potentially be creedal issues, salvational issues, things that all Christians everywhere should hold to with a closed hand and say, we believe this. We need to secure these things like Scripture is uh, inspired. Jesus is God. Salvation comes by Jesus. God is um, all-knowing. He's big. He's awesome. These are things that all Christians everywhere believe. And if it's like you're, if someone claims to be a Christian, but they're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe in Jesus or the Bible or that God is big or that God is awesome. I, I don't believe any of those things. Then you would just look at them like they were crazy, right? You'd be like, dude, you're, you're claiming to be a Christian, but you don't believe in Jesus, the Bible, or God? Like, duh, like get a new name for what it is you believe. Because Christians everywhere should have these you know, closed-handed issues um, close to their heart in a closed hand. This idea that, you know, that, that we can have foundational, fundamental, creedal issues that all Christians everywhere believe in. And so going back to um, last week, we talked about prolegomena last week, and we said in a closed hand, you know, we should at least as Christians all have this idea that God has revealed himself to us. That's where we need to begin, that we can know something about God because he's revealed himself to us. And then maybe in an open hand, in an open hand issue, we could talk about, well, how does God reveal himself? Maybe for today. There's some churches that would say, well, you know, this whole prophecy thing, that was for another time. Whereas we at New Life would be like, no, we believe God can speak today. And maybe we would call that, uh, in some circumstances, we would call that prophecy. But other, other churches would be like, no, that's not for today. That was for another time. And so we can disagree with churches um, that, that have different stances on that particular issue. But at the end of the day, we would all say, but Jesus is Lord. We believe in the Bible. Uh, God is awesome. He is good. And we have these closed-handed issues still closed-handedly um, as creedal issues. So today, we're going to talk about the four red things. Theology, what's that mean? Study of God, uh, proper. Yeah, sometimes people use theology meaning all things uh, about anything concerning religion, but specifically when we break down the system like this, theology literally means study of God. This would be theology proper. Creation, of course, is the study of what God has created. Anthropology, what is that? Study of humanity. Uh, number five, Christology, obviously, study of Christ. And so we're going to try 
to fly through all uh, four of these huge systematic theological topics today. And then next week, we're going to try to do soteriology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, and eschatology. Aaron Wagner back there just took a big bite of a bagel. I saw you. He's going to be teaching um, next week. And so he, he is going to talk about these four subjects and the closed-handed and open-handed issues of these four things, the, the, the last four. But today, the four red ones. And we're going to talk about each one. We're going to go in this order. And hopefully, by the end of this month, you will have a big, like, bird's-eye view of all things theological. And you will begin, even if someone comes with like a left-field question to you and asks you something totally random, you could at least say, well, I don't know the answer to that, and this seems like a very random question, but I could at least plug this question into a bigger topic and talk about the topic as a whole and by which maybe begin to answer this random left-field question, which I think, by the way, is really helpful for us as Christians, for us as theologians, for us as systematicians, that's a vocab word from last week, to begin to do this because I really feel that the, 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 a great place to start theology and the, the topics, you know, this whole big awesome thing of, of all the different things concerning anything religious or Christian, um, the, the, the place to start is to at least bring some order and structure. And so this is the order and the structure systematic theology. So, ah, let's begin, shall we, with theology. Theology, what's it mean again? Study of God. Here's a picture of God and um, the closed-handed issues for theology would be uh, probably some things like the attributes of God, things that, that we know God is like, that all Christians everywhere would say about God. And I remember um, uh, in being in seminary class, uh, this theology class that we had, um, the the teacher was really serious, and every day uh, he started off with a small devotion. Um, he would he would just encourage us and you know either read a scripture or tell us something that was very awesome and powerful that would kind of inspire us for this theological lesson and the lessons the class was set up so it was like all day every day for like a week and so it was just this intense atmosphere for doing theology and every morning began with a devotion and towards the end of the class he was like man I had a devotion prepared but I, I just don't feel like God is uh, leading me to give that devotion. Um, and, and so he said, does anyone in here have just something devotionally they can, they can lead us to for, for us to think about and be inspired for the whole day? And he looked out and, and nobody had anything to say. And so he picked on someone and he picked on me. And he was like, you, Joe, you know, give us a word for today. You know, inspire us for, for this whole lesson, this whole day of learning theology. Do you have a word for us today, Joe? And I was just like, uh... <laughs> Uh, I hate being put. That's why I don't call on any of you because you don't like that. You don't like to just be put on the spot in front of people. But here I was. And so I I said, thinking that the teacher would just take it as a joke and and move on and pick somebody else. But I just said, uh, God is good. And he, and he like sat back and was like, Hmm, that's good. God is good. And, and, and he, he began to talk about, yeah, everything that is good is of God. And, and God has to redefine what it is. The, the very meaning of goodness is, is wrapped in, in who God is. And so, yeah, God is good. He, he, start, he kind of 
led us through this idea of God's goodness and how important of an idea that is, whereas I just thought I was just saying something to get him to call on somebody else. But it is like the attributes of who our God is, that those things are extremely important. And so saying things like God is good is is like that's a part of God's attributes. That's who he is. And saying that statement is huge. That's, that's, that's our God. That's the one we worship. Or saying things like, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Or God is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. Or God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. These are huge statements about who our God is, the attributes of our God. And those, all of those that I just mentioned, the omnis and God's goodness, would all be close-handed issues. We would say that, yeah, God is awesome. And by awesome, we mean totally other. We mean that he is, he, is, he is infinite. And we could talk about how he had no beginning, how God will have no end. And that's huge. We could say how God is maybe above or created time because time itself is, is potentially a creation of God, uh, is what we would say as Christians, that God invented time. And so therefore, if he invented time, then he's above time. And so he can um, just have, have um, like infinite abilities over time. And so as we have found out, some of you in here are interested in physics, we found out that time speeds up or slows down depending on how fast you're moving. Do you know this? This is like the first time I heard this, I was just like, what? Are you insane? But like it's, I guess it's like Einstein's uh, physics that, uh, what's it called? Yeah, that's, I heard that. Anyways, um, it's, kind of, it's kind of out of my field, you know, the whole physics things. But someone was explaining to me, a teacher was like, yeah, if you were able to ride a very fast, fast spaceship at the speed of light, like your parents got on the spaceship, they go off to a very far place at the speed of light, then they come back very fast at the speed of light. Then when they get back, it will seem like they've been gone like a hundred years and you'll be about to die, but they will get off the spaceship and it will be like just a few weeks past and, and they, you will be older than your parents. Everybody say, really? <laughs> I know, it, it blows me away too. So anyways, um, the point being that God is above all that. He's he has dominion over time and space, and he's omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful. He is a good God. And you could list other attributes of God, and we could go on. We could spend this whole Sunday talking about the attributes of God. We could spend a whole month on this topic of theology. But the purpose of this week, this month, is to talk about things quickly so that we can get a bird's-eye view. So moving on, I know we just talked about a whole bunch, and we didn't really spend too much time on any one thing. But moving on with the close-handed issues of what we would say are the the things of when we talk about the study of God, the close-handed issues would be some of God's attributes. Another one would be the, the idea, the fact that we as Christians believe that God is triune. We believe in the Trinity. And I think we sometimes do ourselves injustice when we just talk about, oh, the Trinity, yeah, we believe in that, but we can't explain it, and it's too hard to understand, so why try? Well, that's silly because then people from other religions or denominations are like, so you believe in three gods or one God? And you're like, ah, it's a mystery, so forget about it. And you're like, well, it's important. It's like theologically, who our God is 
matters. And because God is triune, that matters. And so while there is mystery surrounding the Trinity, I think we as Christians should at least explain what the Trinity is and as much as we can about how it works without saying um, things that are wrong and are just making up something. But we could say as Christians that we um, we, we don't believe in three gods, right? We're not tritheists. And we don't believe that our God is, is without personages. And, and so we, we would say he's not, we're not tritheists. We're not monolithic um, uh, believers that we believe in a God without personages. But at the same time, we don't, we don't fall in the middle. We're, it's not like we believe in the middle between three and one. Because what's in the middle of three and one? Two. And we, we, we don't believe in two gods, right? So that's not the middle of three and two. But what we should say as Christians, what we believe as Christians, is that we fully embrace one God. We believe in one God. And at the same time as we believe in one God, we believe that this one God has three distinct persons. And so that mystery is kind of unexplainable, how we could at the same time believe in three and one. But as Christians, I think we should be able to explain that, yeah, our God has three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are three uh, distinct persons. But at the same time, we believe in one God. And that how three can be one, that's the mystery. But I think just saying, oh yeah, the Trinity, we can't explain it. It's a mystery. Moving on. It's like, no, we, we, we could at least say, and, and we believe that we three and one at the same time, and, and that's the Trinity. And so um, those are some of the close-handed issues that we would talk about when we're talking about theology. Open-handed issues concerning theology would, I, I, I thought of just one example that I think we as Christians do a lot. We have a lot of open-handed issues in this regard is when we try to talk about God with our anthropomorphisms. Isn't that a fun word? You could say it if you want. Anthropomorphisms. Homorphisms. And what it means is when we place upon God or something that's not human, but we place upon it human characteristics. Like when we say, oh, the mighty hand of God, or when God walks with me through my life. And it's like, well, God doesn't need a hand because he's God, and God doesn't have to walk because he's not defined or confined by gravity. Therefore, he, he might not even have feet. God is spirit. But th- those are anthropomorphisms of things that we say about God that, that, that make sense to us. Yeah, God's hand is mighty. Yes, I, I, what you're saying is he's powerful. God walks with us. Well, maybe not literally, but what you're saying is he protects, he guides us. Yes, I agree with that. So some of the open-handed issues would be things like when we use anthropomorphisms about our God and try to explain maybe what God is thinking when this happens or God's emotions. I think those a lot of times are anthropomorphisms that can be seen from different angles and we potentially could argue with other Christians about what God was feeling or what God was thinking or those things. Um, and so those would be open-handed issues um, about theology. And so let's, let's move right on, shall we? I mean, we're, we're, that's what we're doing today. We're going through this whole thing quickly. And so if it seems like we're talking about four very different topics, that's because we are. And so moving right along, the next topic after theology is creation. And creation refers, of course, to God's creation. When God said, when God spoke, he created. And the close-handed issue here, if you're taking notes, is that God created ex nihilo, a Latin phrase for, do you know? Yeah, I hear it, out of nothing. God created out of nothing. 
And so we as Christians would, would, if someone just asks you, hey, are you a creationist? I think our immediate response should be, yes, we believe in a creator. We believe that all things um, have some beginning, and that beginning has to be God. Um, the, the world, the universe as we know it, hasn't been around infinitely like God has infinitely been around. There was a point in which God was God, and he, out of himself, created. Out of nothing, he created. The universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, us, whatever. We are creationists because we believe God created out of nothing, ex nihilo. But usually what people mean when they're asking you if you're a creationist, sometimes maybe, is they're asking you, are you a seven-day literal creationist? Are you an old earth creationist? Are you uh, a new earth creationist? Are you a gap theory creationist? They're asking you, like, specifically, what do you believe about how God created? But I think the bigger, the close-handed issue here is that God did create, and ultimately he created out of nothing, at some point. And then once he created, maybe how those things formed, well, that, that can be up for debate amongst Christians, amongst the churches. Some churches, some Christian individuals may lean to one side and say, I'm a very literal uh, Genesis 1 believer. I, I, I would say that God created in seven literal days and the earth is very young, all the way to other Christians who potentially could be sitting in this room, who could potentially be new lifers. There's both sides of this, of this issue at new life at various churches. So one Christian said they were seven-day literal young earth. Another Christian could say, I'm an old earth. I'm, I'm more of a progressive uh, creationist or a theistic evolutionist. And they would say that God created out of nothing and then allowed that life, allowed um, the things to form in and of its own or by a process. And so the Christians over here would be much more open to evolution and that process. But all Christians, once again, going back to where we started, of this close-handed issue of we are creationists in the fact that God created out of nothing. And so that really goes to form our thoughts. Uh, I think I've talked about this before. We spent a whole month, by the way, on creation uh, about, about this time last year. So if, you're, if this is a topic that interests you, well, you can go on podcast and watch a whole month's, or listen to it, I mean, a whole month's sermons on this one topic, whereas we're just spending like five minutes on it. But it goes back to this idea, uh, another close-handed issues, that there's only two things in this world. Thing number one and thing number two. Not to be confused with The Cat in the Hat, by Dr. Seuss and the characters, thing number one and thing number two. But um, uh, we, as Christians, believe, and, and get, get your mind around this idea, because it's pretty huge, that, that everything is either one of two things. Do you know what it is? Thing number one would be God, and everything else in existence would be his creation. So we are dualists in that sense, that we believe that there's two things, there's two stuffs, either God or his creation, which really goes back to this idea that everything that is in existence is either God or God's creation. Therefore, nothing was preexistent to God. It's not like the, these universal laws of gravity and motion were in place, and then out of those laws of motion, God came to being. No, we as Christians would say, no, God is awesome. God is infinite. He is the creator. Out of him came the laws of gravity and motion and, and matter and everything that is in existence. So everything is either thing number one or thing number two. Does that make sense or confuse you more? 
<laughs> Moving on. <laughs> By the way, did you know who invented the word nerd? Our homeboy, Dr. Seuss. So every time we're like Sunday school nerds, Dr. Seuss invented the word nerd. Surprised you didn't know that. All right. Moving right along. So we talked about theology. We talked about creation. Now we're moving right to anthropology, the study of um, the study of humanity, which some theologians would say uh, the study of humanity is um, is a subset of creation because we as humans are a subset of creation. And so I totally get that. Other theologians are like, no, it should be a subject totally in and of itself because we as humans are so very different than all of creation. We are different. Here's a painting, uh, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, the painting of when God's finger touches Adam's finger, um, uh, that painting of when God breathed life into Adam and then said Adam uh, is created with the image of God and then would go on to say that both male and female are created in the image of God, in the image of God, he created them, both male and female. Um, of Genesis 5-2, and God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. And so what is it about humans that is different? Well, this close-handed issue would be um, that humans are in the likeness of God. The open-handed issue would be, well, what exactly is that image of God. I think there, there can be some debate over what that image is exactly, but we would all as Christians say we are different as humans because no other animal or creature or thing is given the image of God except for humans in the, in the account of the creation of Genesis, which begs the question, okay, then what is the image of God? What is it? And I want to just open the question up for a second because we have a few minutes to talk about this and ask, okay, we have the image of God. What is it? How is it that we are like God? What is that image? Which I can confuse you even more and show you skulls of uh, hominids, which is, this just always just rattles my mind thinking about the image of God and who we are as, as humans. At, at the bottom right, you have a skull of a human. Hopefully you could see this uh, in the back too, but in the far upper left is a skull of a monkey, and we would say, oh, monkeys, they don't have the image of God. But we would say, we as humans have the image of God. But then what about these skulls of bones of these extinct hominids that we have found um, digging up the soil? We found uh, some of these represent uh, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, the Cro-Magnon man, Australopithecus, which is my favorite one just to say, Australopithecus. It's fun to say because I can't say it, but... That's the, uh, the bone structure of Lucy. Uh, maybe you, you've heard of Lucy and seen her bones on a collection somewhere or in textbooks. Maybe you've seen an artist. Uh, maybe like they put skin on the bones and hair on the bones and, and make an artist's representation of what Lucy could have looked like. And maybe you've seen pictures of this, uh, an upright walking humanoid that isn't quite a homo sapien sapien. That's what we are. But it, it was something else, potentially a different species, uh, an Australopithecus. And so what does this creature have the image of God? Question mark. I, I don't know. And, and then it goes back to this question. Well, what is the image of God? And I, I want to give you a discussion question because that's a lot of what we do in the Mill Sunday School. We discuss things and think about them. So if you would, just quickly get in a group and just list the things that you think um, could be the answer to this question. What does it mean to be created 
in the image of God. Either pair up or form a little table and, and think about that question for just like two minutes. It's not, I'm not going to give you very long, so jump right in. Ready, get set, go. All right, I want to hear from some of you. Um, <clears throat> I realize I'm cutting you short because sometimes I get ahead of myself and how much we're going to cover, especially in a lesson like today where we're trying to cover four independent topics. So sorry for cutting you short, but does anyone have um, something I want to share answering the question, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Yes, thank you, Josh. Okay, yeah, he's saying God is three persons, the Trinity we just talked about. Humans are three persons. You said body, soul, and spirit. We have the capacity to love, choose, and think on our own. So animals, other animals or plants, whatever, don't have that. So that's the image of God. Anything else? We have the knowledge of good and evil because of the fall. Yeah, what else? Anybody else want to share? Sorry, the mic's struggling. But anybody? Nobody? Bueller. Bueller. All right, yeah. Noah. God shows what? The male and female? So humans are either male or female, so so God has more than one personality, maybe two person. It's working now? Okay, I'll give it to Noah. I'm done. Okay. That's it? Well, perfect. Thank you. No, no, so God has personality. A male and female has different, maybe God is, uh, that has male and female characteristics. Maybe that's what part of the image, the answering the question of what is the image of God. Sure. Anybody else before I put it away? Go back to my little place up here. We're good? Okay. Um, Theologians usually talk about three things uh, according to the image of God. Just to give you kind of an answer to wrap up before we move on. That the image of God could be substantive. That means um, actually our substance and who we are. That that we as humans have two arms and two legs and we walk upright um, and, and can do things because we have opposable thumbs that that's uh, the substantive idea of God, that God's image kind of looks like us as humans. And we would say, well, no, God is spirit. But it is an idea of what the image of God could be. The next one is functional. And something we do um, is the image of God. For instance, God has dominion over the earth. Then God gives us dominion. So by us exercising dominion as humanity, that is the image of God. And then uh, third and finally, um, the, the relational aspect of the image of God. I think Josh mentioned this one, that, that because we are uh, relational, that we can maybe have a relationship with God and other people in a way that other animals cannot, and we can communicate in a much higher level than other animals and plants and bacteria and things, that that is the image of God, a relational. So those are options for you. Once again, the whole idea of what the image of God is would be an open-handed issue, Whereas the, the idea that we as Christians believe that, that we are created in the image of God would be a closed-handed issue. Hopefully that makes sense. We are moving very fast. And so the next whole topic, moving right along in the system of systematic theology, is Christology. The study of Christ. study of Jesus. Here's a picture of him somewhat representing his humanity and that there he is as a human. But then the, this crown around him, this halo around him, representing the idea that he was God. And so I think the biggest thing that we can talk about as Christians, the biggest close-handed issue of when, it retur- when we talk about Jesus is this big theological term. And I give it to you because this is the term that people use. They'll say this and they'll say what they mean. And it's not like you're just trying to be cool and use big words, but these are the big theological u- words used when you start doing theology. Is this word called, two words, the hypostatic union. 
which is fun to say again. There's lots of fun words today. The hypostatic union is the union between the divinity and the humanity, the man and God of Jesus Christ. And when we talk about Jesus, we always talk about how he is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And, and explaining that, can, we can get into the mystery of how that can be, but we really have to say that God, uh, that Jesus is both God and human man at the same time. And how that works, well, that's the hypostatic union. This is this theological term. But we as Christians, when we explain who Jesus is, when we believe upon him who saved us from our sins, we, we truly have to believe in the full humanity of Jesus and the full divinity of Jesus. And we can get into pretty um, big errors if we say things like, oh yeah, Jesus was fully God and then he came to the world and he put himself inside a human suit. Has anybody heard it explained like that before? You probably have. Sunday school teachers are notorious for explaining it like that, but not explaining the other side too. Because what that says is by saying if Jesus was God and came down and just got inside of like a Halloween human suit and zipped himself up and lived a life is saying he's not fully human. He's just wearing a human suit. Can you see what that? Can you see where I'm going with this? And if he's not truly human, well, then he didn't really die on the cross. Um, all that happened on the cross was just his human suit got nailed to the cross. And we would say, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus was fully human. He fully suffered on the cross. He fully died on the cross. He was fully in pain on the cross because it wasn't just his suit being nailed to the cross. It was truly him. His essence was human. And then you could go the other way, which, which plenty of uh, non-Christian religions that are similar to Christian religions would go. And they would say, oh yeah, Jesus was a great guy, but he was just a guy and he was very blessed by God. And to that we would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said some wildly different things than that when he was here on earth. He said him and the Father were one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, there's scriptures that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, and referring to Jesus. And we would say, that's extremely important that Jesus wasn't just a blessed man of God, but when Jesus came to the earth, he was fully God, fully man. Therefore, when he died on the cross, he fully knew what it was like to suffer because he was fully human. But at the same time, he was fully able to save us because it was God dying on the cross and not just some human dying for your sins. It was God himself. And that's why the cross is so meaningful, which, which will get us right in to next week's lesson when we talk about soteriology and try to talk about the last four systematic theological topics and talk about open-handed and close-handed issues for the four of them. Um, so the close-handed issue here about Christology is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. An open-handed issue would be, well, how did that work out? Well, questions like maybe uh, not did Jesus sin, but could Jesus have sinned? Different Christians would argue, oh, he could have sinned. Or maybe, no, maybe he couldn't have sinned because he was God, but he could have sinned because he was human. And we can go back and forth about that. That would be an open-handed issue. But the close-handed issue, once again, would be the hypostatic union, Jesus' full divinity and full humanity all at once. And so I want to conclude today. We're ending uh, like just three minutes early, so I'll give you like three minutes plus. You, you could carry this conversation on um, and as, you, as we close, but I'm going to give you a discussion question 
then we're going to pray, close, kind of dismiss you, and but you could stay here discussing this question for as long as you want. Um, church doesn't start till 11, so we have some time if you're going to the next service. But this is the discussion question. Can someone believe in Jesus? It's kind of wordy, so uh, go with me for a second. Wait, let me put it back up. Um, can, it's, it's, can someone believe in Jesus? Um, is it back up? Yeah. Can someone believe in Jesus as Lord, but not believe he is God and be saved? So do you get the question? If someone's like, yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe in him, but I don't believe he was God. He was just another human that died for my sins. Maybe he was a blessed human. He was a sacrifice for all humans, but he wasn't God. Can that person be saved? And I ask this question, we do a think tank every month, um, and we, we talk about the topics that we're going to talk about this month. Um, and it was me, Sven, uh, I think my, my wife was there, and Jordan, and a guy named Aaron Higgins. And we were talking about this question, and we started saying things like, well, we aren't the judge. And we started saying things like, um, well, if he's not fully God, if Jesus isn't fully God, then how could he fully save all of humanity? And then we started talking about things like, well, what about faith like a child? Maybe they don't have all the theology right. And then we started talking about, well, maybe this is a salvational issue. This is a close-handed issue, but is that synonymous with a salvational issue? And so we started talking about all these things, and it was really a pretty cool conversation that we had, which I hope maybe you can have right now, which is a pretty big question. Can someone believe that, that Jesus is the Lord of their life, but not believe that Jesus was God? And so I want to ask that question, I'm going to pray, and then it'll be your ending, concluding discussion question, which will really bring us into next week when we talk about salvation and how Jesus and salvation, this question is kind of in between those two things. So let's pray. God, we do come before you and know that wisdom and knowledge and these theological things are important. And God, we come before you with this question about salvation and who you were when you came to this earth, Jesus, as, as fully God and fully man. And we do believe that about you. Would you give us um, guidance and wisdom and knowledge concerning these things? God, we leave here knowing more about you. We leave here excited to think about you and to talk about you. God, we praise you. We love you so much. And everybody said, amen. All right, friends, you're officially dismissed, but feel free to discuss the question. Peace out.